This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. Good morning again, 10 minutes after 5 o'clock. It's 34 degrees on the thermometer outside my studios in Huntley, Illinois, but it's dry. No rain, no snow, at least at the moment. But good to have you with us for our weekly get-together to talk about the world's most important basic industry, producing food and clothing and now energy for all of us. So uh, we love to talk about agriculture and its importance. Coming up this morning on the uh, Saturday morning show, we're going to check in with a dairy family in the little town of Waterloo, Wisconsin, that has gone from just milking cows to producing championship, world championship cheese. We're going to check in with George Crave of Crave Brothers Farmstead Dairy. Haven't talked to them for quite a while. And uh, looking forward to sharing their thoughts with you on uh, what's happening to them, at least, in the dairy industry. But good to have you with us here on this Saturday morning. And uh, we go into an interesting weekend after coming out of probably the most unusual market week in my half century of reporting markets in the agricultural community and the equity stock market community. Can't remember a week like we've just had, and apparently we're going to continue having as long as the concerns are there, and I certainly don't argue with those concerns, but uh, I always go back to my line on menu and food. If you eat, you die. If you don't eat, you die. So anyway, and I'm in that age group that uh, is probably at the greatest risk of coronavirus. So, But you have to take it one day at a time. We're going to check in with George Crave at Crave Brothers, and we'll do that when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. This morning, it's going to be a good time for me when I have the chance to visit with some folks in the dairy industry that I haven't talked to for quite a while. But it's time to catch up with Crave Brothers Farmstead Cheese in Wisconsin. And with me on the line today is George Craven. And it's been a while, George, since we've caught up with what you're doing So let's catch up a little bit on your background in the dairy industry and the changes that you have made to uh, do a better job of marketing. And it's great to have you with us here on the air. Well, good. Well, thanks, Orion, and welcome welcome back to Wisconsin, America's Dairyland. Uh, Yeah, here at Crave Brothers Farm, uh, we have two uh, enterprises right across the road from each other here in Waterloo, Wisconsin, about 40 minutes east of Madison. We have Cray Brothers Farm, which is about a 3,000-acre cropping operation where we grow all use for feed, corn, a lot of corn for silage, uh, alfalfa, winter wheat, soybeans, crop rotation, and we harvest all that to feed our roughly 3,300 head. We milk 1,900 cows every day, three times a day, 
on two different sites. The home farm is about 1,100 cows, and we milk about 800 uh, down the road on another dairy. And those are, uh, if you don't aren't familiar with dairy farming, it's a full full employment opportunity. Uh, we milk cows around the clock on both dairies and uh, never turn the lights off. It's the worst investment I ever made was buying a light switch because we never <laughs> use it. But <laughs> I can yeah. understand that, but you did some unusual things with the handling of waste and uh, turning that into what, energy? Yes, all the, the waste from the cows uh, from our home farm and all the heifers are raised here at the home farm. The, the future cows, the heifer replacements are all raised here, and also the waste from the cheese factory uh, goes into two large 750,000-gallon tanks that are heated to about 105 degrees, which is the ideal temperature for maximum microbial development. That huge population of microbes rapidly decomposes the biomass, which in turn produces methane gas, and we we capture that gas and run it through a 800-horse, V12 engine, which is about the size of a large SUV car, and uh, that instead of burning gasoline or diesel, the engine runs off of the methane and turns a electromagnetic generator that generates enough electricity to power the farm, the cheese factory, and about 300 homes in our community. So um, at the end of the day, all that, that waste comes back out. Uh, we squeeze it, dry it a little bit more, and use the solids, all the fluffy solids that already went through the cow and uh, put it back underneath them, and there are about 3,300 pre-stalls that get bedded twice a week <laughs> off of those solids. The liquids go into a large fertilizer tank that all get recycled back onto the fields. And when did you decide to uh, do more than milk cows? You decided to make a cheese factory? Yes, we did. Um might sound kind of funny, but I, uh, after milking cows for about 20 years, back in about 98, I, I got kind of bored with it. We were milking four or 500 cows then and really looking at growing the family business without just milking more cows and uh, giving opportunity for my, my brothers and a couple of our sons and the rest of the family members and long-term employees to grow their business. So I stepped aside and researched building a cheese factory and it convinced my wife, Debbie, to come home from Madison after working in Madison for 20 years in agricultural marketing. And uh, between Debbie and myself, we started the cheese factory right across the road from our milking barn. And uh, we've added on four times since then, since since, uh, 2001. And today we we process about uh, 700,000 pounds of milk a day uh, a week which is uh 14 semi loads the big tubes that go down the road 14 semi loads of milk we process a week here at the cheese factory that uh, we make roughly oh 70 80 thousand pounds of cheese a week and uh, we package it all here also that gets distributed nationwide so in the course of a week we produce enough make enough cheese that uh probably uh, a quarter of a million people will enjoy in the course of a week between restaurants, pizzas, and uh, taking it home and enjoying it at their table. Well, I have to tell you, when I was a kid in Vernon County, Wisconsin, my uncle had a cheese factory. So I do have experience making cheese in case you ever need some labor to come and help you do that. Well, yeah, you have to have a good back, and just like farming, there's no, there's no easy way to do it. But we have some terrific people here. We employ about 45 people that help me every day and and help me be successful so I can help them be successful. 
And how many family members would be involved in all this operation? Well, we have my brother Charlie and brother Tom and Mark, and then their children, Jordan and Andy, are owners. Uh, my son Patrick's an owner that's uh, at the farm. He's the herdsman. Our son Brian works with us at the cheese factory. He's a Wisconsin licensed cheese maker. And then our niece, Beth Crave, is also involved, and she's been head of uh, customer service and quality assurance at the cheese factory. So we have quite a, quite a handful already, and we, we look forward to uh, more in the future. And our daughter's very interested in coming back. She's a senior in Madison and really is involved in our marketing and, and food shows and demonstrations also. So a lot of opportunity, as I said earlier, uh, you know, to grow the, grow, uh, the business for for more uh, family business and more opportunities for everyone on Torpy Road here in our little town of Waterloo. So now let's go back to March 3rd and 4th, Madison, Wisconsin, the 2020 World Championship Cheese Contest. You won some awards there, but tell me a little bit about the contest. How many and where do they come from? Well, it's the, it is the World Cheese Contest, which is uh, sponsored Every other year, it is the world, and uh, the alternating years are the U.S. Cheese Championships. It's sponsored by the Wisconsin the Wisconsin Cheesemakers Association. It's either in Green Bay, Milwaukee, or Madison, uh, Wisconsin. And uh, for the world competition, they receive uh, close to 3,000 individual pieces of cheese that are in uh, 20-some categories. I'm probably mis- misrepresenting that a little bit, but roughly 20-some categories all the way from sheep, goat, uh, cow, hard cheese, soft cheese, flavored cheese, aged, braged, uh, fresh, uh, and, and cream cheese, and butters, and whey, and whey protein. So uh, when you take, take a gallon of milk and you look at it, there's a lot of things in that gallon of milk that you can, do, that you can make additional products out of and value-added products, and that's what really the cheese business is. We did really well. We had uh, first place in jalapeno cheese curds. And, Orion, you know what cheese curds are. Being I like sure that. do, because I ate them a lot and still do. Yeah, those squeaky cheese curds, they're fresh. And we uh, sprinkle jalapeno, uh, chopped jalapeno on it, and it's delicious. And you fry it up in a pan and slide it on your, your burger, and it makes a wonderful cheeseburger. Uh, we, we placed first in that category. We also placed second and third in the mascarpone, which is a sweet Italian cream cheese. It's a non-cultured cream cheese that makes good with tiramisu and mascarpone chocolate pie and mascarpone mushroom soup. So that's uh, uh, how we use it. And we placed second and third in that category. And also in the, the braided string cheese in the, the Latin uh, American cheese category, our case of Oaxaca uh, placed third uh, in that category. With and all these categories have roughly twenty to forty other cheeses. So to place in the top three is very. Uh, we're very pleased with that. And then our fresh mozzarella, which is one of our flagship cheeses, uh, we just finished out of the off the podium, as they would say. But uh, we had four in the top ten. So we had fourth, fifth, seventh, and ninth of uh, in the fresh mozz category also. So. We're very proud of that, and we always celebrate our victories and congratulate my team on doing a good job. It really just validates what we do out here. So of these 3,000 products entered, how many come from other countries, or how many countries are involved in the world championship? Well, I'm not sure right off the top of my head, but they come from all over. We had a reception last Thursday 
the uh, the fifth in Madison uh, when they announced the champion cheese. And two of the uh, the first and second place cheeses came from the little mountain towns in Switzerland, the Gruyere cheese uh, over in Switzerland. The third place came from Holland, a aged Gouda cheese. Uh, in the reception, I went around and enjoyed some cheese, uh, a, a wonderful breed cheese from New Zealand. I think they won the, the award for traveling the farthest. Uh, cheeses from Spain, Italy, of course, a large uh, Parmesan wheel from Italy. And so all over the world, uh, you know, Holland, Ireland, the Great Britain, and their, their cheddars. So uh, very well represented on an international, and it's truly an international competition. Well, I'm glad you got it done before all of the coronavirus cut into travel, because that would have certainly cut into the number of exhibitors. Now, I have to ask you, of all the cheeses, what is your favorite? Well, I, for... for and you don't, I don't have it very often, but a good wash rind. I really enjoyed that uh, a brie style or a uh, camembert style. I think that's uh, really a delicious cheese. I do enjoy also the harder alpine-style cheeses. Uh, we have a great cheese here in Wisconsin. Sartori Cheese Company up in, up in Wisconsin makes a terrific harder cheese. Uh, that is one of my favorites also. So, and then Widmer Brick here in uh, Teresa, Wisconsin, the good old German brick cheese that they make. So those are all terrific cheeses, and, and uh, I'm going to get in trouble if I, if I name too many more that I forget <laughs> okay. that I exclude, so I'll stop there. So how important is the pizza industry to a farm like yours? Well, for us, it's, uh, it's a very good part of the business. Uh, of course, nationally, if uh, we didn't have pizzas, we wouldn't. We'd probably wouldn't need about uh, three million cows in the U.S. So uh, we're very happy that uh, people are enjoying pizzas and and uh, putting good mozzarella and other cheeses on the on topping. Did uh, you, we make uh, cheese for a company in Milwaukee, Palermo's Pizza, that puts it on their Screaming Sicilian Bessie's Revenge and their Urban Pie and their Cauliflower Crust, uh, and we make a special mozzarella for them that uh, they can use in their production facilities and. Uh, we make a lot of it for them, and uh, a little bit on each pizza. When you make millions of pizzas, it adds up. Yep. Do you market internationally? We do not. We do have some of our cheese that gets off uh, gets off the shores down in Florida and off of Texas and such uh, for the uh, the case of Oaxaca that gets into those regions. But we don't intentionally try to get it over to Korea or any place like that. We're really not that big of a company uh, to to dive into those markets. Well, I have to tell you, because I do have a home in Arizona and spend some time out there, so I love Mexican food. I can hardly wait to try your jalapeno cheddar cheese curds. How do I, do I have to drive to Waterloo to get them? Or? No, no. Uh, we're in, uh, we sell our products, go on trucks here out of our, out of our loading dock here. And they get out on the open roads, and they end up all the way from Miami to Seattle every every uh, week. And we're very proud of that, and very humbled by by thinking of our, our products that are getting out to those regions. Uh, Whole Foods is a great partner of ours. The Whole Foods uh, stores, uh, the mozzarella at Whole Foods is ours. The mascarpone is ours, uh, and uh, you might find some of the cheese curds there. The Oaxaca also is a Whole Foods, and some of the other. Uh, if I named them, you know, Sam's Club and Walmart and right. some of the big distributors there that uh, uh, have some of the case of Oaxaca. So we're very proud to be in those fine retailers. 
Well, George, it's great to catch up with you and the family and uh, keep on doing what you're doing for the dairy industry and for the food industry because I think it's great. That's Crave Brothers Farmstead Cheese, Waterloo, Wisconsin, with us here on the Saturday Morning Show. It is 27 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday Morning Show. You're listening to WGN Radio Chicago, which is heard in a lot of other countries, and particularly in uh, North America and in Europe. Uh, People are hearing us on streaming services. We're delighted to have you with us. As some people have said, How much has the coronavirus interfered with agricultural activities? Luckily, most of the big conventions that are held every year in the winter season have been completed. We've had Commodity Classic. We've had National Pork Producers. We've had the uh, American Farm Bureau Convention, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Luckily, those were all completed before we really got as concerned as we are about the coronavirus. But there were a couple of major events that had to be canceled. The uh, Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, I think, got about halfway through its schedule, and then they decided to shut it down because of the crowds that come to that show in Houston. So the Houston Livestock Show, like a lot of uh, teams involved in athletics, uh, had to shut down halfway through their judging process. And uh, also uh, down in Texas, uh, due to the concerns surrounding coronavirus, the Texas and Southwestern Cattle Raisers Association uh, unanimously decided to postpone the cattle convention and will hold it this fall. That's uh, outside of the Cattlemen's Beef Association, one of the biggest conventions involving the cattle industry anywhere in the country. So, yes, those activities have uh, been, well, shut down or at least partially shut down in the world of agriculture. But right now, farmers are simply getting machinery ready and starting to get itchy because they want to get into the field. As a matter of fact, on our TV show this week, we had a video of a farmer in central Illinois who was planting soybeans a few days ago. And that's pretty early, but uh, yeah, we get itchy to get going. So there is indeed uh, still a lot of activity that's going to be affected by the uh, coronavirus and uh, the market certainly have uh, seen that happen. It's 5.30 here on the Saturday Morning Show, and uh, we'll be talking to Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Service uh, about the market activity. And I'll be joined by uh, Mike Pearson in talking to Dennis when we move into that in the second half hour here on the Saturday Morning Show. Finally, we have a new Canada-U.S.-Mexico trade agreement. Now, here in the United States, we uh, approved that, and uh, President uh, Trump signed off on the U.S.-Canadian-Mexican trade agreement on January 29th after it did receive overwhelming bipartisan support in Congress. But just this week, Canada 
the Canadian Parliament approved the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. So finally, after a year and a half or two years of talking about it, it is in place. And some of the key provisions of that agreement... America's dairy farmers will have expanded market opportunities in Canada for a wide variety of dairy products because Canada agreed to eliminate the Class 6 and 7 milk pricing uh, pricing programs that allowed their farmers to undersell U.S. producers. And the... uh, Uh, U.S. Grains Council also hailed the final agreement and the signing and the uh, list of advantages for the sector, the grain market, also long. And the agreement will maintain zero tariffs on U.S. feed grains, co-products, and ethanol provides the highest enforceable sanitary and phytosanitary standards in any trade agreement to date, addresses regulatory equivalence, science and risk analysis, transparency, and cooperative technical consultations, creates a rapid response mechanism to address trade challenges, modernizes border procedures, and includes an enforcement enforceable biotechnology chapter, and that's the first ever in a U.S. trade agreement. So, uh, as I said, um, and said many times during the past year, I long for the day when we could quit talking about China-U.S. trade agreements and about the uh, new North American, what I call NAFTA number two trade agreement. Well, We don't have to talk about them anymore, but the reason is we've been talking about the coronavirus impact on agriculture and agricultural trade. So we're now at the point we can't do a market report without talking about coronavirus. Coming up, uh, time for Samuelson Says. I am Orion with my personal thoughts and opinions. This one on the fact that there are college scholarships available. Can I say anything this week without mentioning coronavirus? It has been impossible to talk about anything else in my daily market reports since it appeared on the scene a couple months ago. And of course, now it's totally dominating radio and TV newscasts 24 hours a day. But I'm going to talk about a topic that I do every year at about this time, and hopefully it will brighten your day, especially if you are a high school senior graduating this spring and planning to go to college in the fall, or if you are a parents of the future college student getting sticker shock when you learn the total cost of that college education. So here is the good news. There is a way to cut the cost with a scholarship. And you know, there are a lot of scholarships available out there for students who are interested in a career in agriculture or agribusiness. But as I have been telling you for years, that scholarship will not come looking for you. You will have to go looking for it. 
and then followed through with your high school guidance counselor on how to make the proper application to qualify for it. Now, hardly a week goes by that I don't receive a press release announcing that scholarships are available from this company or that organization or even individuals who want to pay it forward for young people. And I don't say this to brag, but my wife Gloria and I, with the help of some good friends, established a scholarship program for agricultural students at the University of Illinois a few years ago, and last year it awarded $1,500 scholarships to eight students. And the National Association of Farm Broadcasting annually awards a $5,000 scholarship in my name to a future farm broadcaster. It's something you may want to consider to leave as a legacy in your will for future generations. But students, remember, scholarship money will not come looking for you, so you have to go looking for it. My thoughts on Samuelson Says... A presentation of Nexstar Media Group at 21 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. Temperature generally in the 30s over the Midwest area and uh, dry in much of the area here on this Saturday morning. But a lot of people are probably scrambling, uh, wondering what they're going to watch on television this weekend because there'll be no golf, there'll be no basketball, there'll be no spring training baseball. We're heading back to uh, uh, Scottsdale, Arizona next week, and uh, it'll be kind of strange because the uh, crowds that gathered there for spring training probably are heading for home and a lot of those folks come from the midwest the dakotas minnesota illinois wisconsin so uh, yeah it is a different world without sports activity and the meeting activity church services that are not going to be held uh, this uh, weekend and just a lot of different activity that's uh, not going to be part of our life this weekend. We may have to start talking to each other instead of watching sports on TV and all that. Uh, It'll be a new world. But uh, the markets will continue to function, although the trading floor at the uh, Board of trade and the mercantile exchange, which really has been trading without much in the way of real live people, not like it was in the olden days when you'd go down there and the floor was full of arm-waving, shouting, yelling, sometimes having, well, almost fistfights over getting their trade accomplished. So uh, that will be uh, not a part of trading floor at least for a while and that's leading a lot of us who have watched these markets for years to wonder if we ever again will see any trading floor activity not that we're seeing that much now but on the subject of markets uh, we're going to check in with dennis smith of archer financial services when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Well, welcome back to Dennis Smith. Haven't seen you for a while, Dennis. Thank you. Archer Financial Services. Have you ever seen market activity like we're seeing? 
No, Orion, I've been around. My first event was the Black Monday stock market crash of 1987, and uh, that market action is nothing compared to what we're experiencing in this day and age. So, no, I've never seen or experienced, as I say, there's, the, there's no playbook right now. So how much of that is spilling into agricultural trade? Oh, very much so, especially the cattle market. To a lesser extent, the hog market, it's impacting the grain market, virtually every commodity market, of course, now including crude oil market. The cattle market is taking this situation extremely hard uh, with a sharp downward spiraling move. And is that because consumer buying is probably not what it should be? The expectations are that consumer buying will, will drop off. It hasn't happened yet. Wholesale beef prices continue to hold despite or in the face of continued large, in fact, record large beef production. It's all an expectations thing. It's all a fear factor situation. So various parts of the country, we're in the calving season. Is it going well from what you hear? I think it's going well. I think it's uh, far better than, say, a year ago. So, yeah, I think the calving season is moving along uh, just fine. Smaller numbers, though, we're going to have a reduced calf crop compared to previous years. Will that ultimately lead to higher consumer prices? Uh, ultimately, but that will take some time. We're expecting beef production to peak in the second quarter and then start declining in the third quarter of this year. And what about the export market? Is that holding? So far, in fact, exports are hot right now. Beef exports in January up 3% and record large for the month of January. Pork exports moving off the charts, and that's going to continue in 2020. Still waiting for more China buying of pork? We are, and I think it's coming, and I think it'll continue to increase. The question is, does that acceleration in exports exceed the expanding production? Dennis, you mentioned you were expecting to see consumer purchasing step down. We're expecting to see maybe visits to restaurants slow down. We're not seeing it yet, and yet the volatility is happening today for folks, particularly cattle feeders with cattle in the yards. How do they protect themselves against the whiplash that's happening in this market? Well, it's as far as protecting. It's too late on this move. It's simply too late. I would not assume a position in the market. We have been advising non-marginable positions in the market. In other words, using put options to protect additional downside. Because when this market bottoms and comes up out of here, it's going to be fast and furious. So as far as protecting, the key is to not panic and do not assume a marginable position in the market at this point in time. Now, you mentioned when this thing bottoms and begins a rebound, I think that's something everybody, particularly in the beef and pork markets, is waiting for. What's it going to take? Do we just need an equity rebound, maybe sparked by some Fed stimulus, or do we need a coronavirus cure to really get this thing to bounce back? I think the virus is going to come and go, and I think it's going to get in our rearview mirror quicker than what everybody realizes. It took about two months in China. I suspect, my own opinion, it'll be about half that long to, to run its course in the U.S., and then we begin a real impressive recovery in prices. Well, we are waiting for that recovery in prices. What's your price, your top line target when that recovery comes on live cattle this summer? 
This summer, it's hard to say. We're down to 113 now. Probably a 110 market is actually where we've traded. But we could go way above 120 as we springboard this market back up this summer. Let's change our focus over to hogs. We've seen pork sell off just as much and then buy back just as much as cattle has. But in fact, it's not nearly been as volatile. What's been the underlying factors in the lean hog market? We're starting to see some competition develop at the packer level for cash hogs. That's been a pleasant surprise. We've basically been holding steady in the cash in the face of all of this volatility and in the face of continued large hog numbers. Hog slaughter's been running 6% larger than a year ago, pretty much since uh, about the middle of January. Now we're starting to see the cash market firm up. Exports are beginning to ramp up to China as well as our other customers, and I think we're about to see numbers begin to drop off. Unfortunately, weights are still heavy. If we could get numbers and weights to drop off, I think you'd see a really impressive move in hog prices. So cash is staying strong. Numbers are starting to come down already, or you anticipate that very shortly? We're anticipating that. Uh, we saw a first blemish in the in the slaughter this week where one of the kills was down about uh, 10,000 head lower than expected. So I think we're getting to the point where numbers will start dropping off. And on the weight side of things, how much heavier have we been running these hogs over a year? ago? Uh, roughly uh, one pound to two pounds, and then it will be about even. So we're just slightly over a year ago, but that's a pretty heavy hog. We need to see weights come down. You know, one of the things we've seen over the past three years in the hog industry in particular, and of course it's showing up in the slaughter numbers, incredible expansion across the Midwest. Is that coming to an end? Is this volatility going to make it stop? I wish I could say yes, but we have no real feel for that as, as to if the expansion is ending. It's been an aggressive expansion carrying on now for several years. It would be nice to see expansion flatten out. We keep talking about more exports to China, but if we don't get them, where else do we go with our pork? Well, we still have a, a traditional customers now that we have a new trade agreement in place with Mexico and Canada. Mexico is our largest buyer of hams and you, traditionally our second largest buyer. We have a trade agreement in place with Japan. Tariffs uh, between us and Japan go down April 1st as a result of this trade agreement. And we are expanding pork exports to, to Latin America, Central America, and even Australia, New Zealand. Are we seeing some of those big hog barns in Iowa shut down, or are they coming back? Everybody's uh, still in place. And in fact, there's talk of built barns still being built in Iowa. So uh, for what we know, the expansion is still in place. A lot of optimism toward increasing pork exports. Any final market advice for hog producers? At this point, uh, prepare to sell a rally, especially for fourth quarter. Because of the expansion, there could be a problem with capacity, slaughter capacity being challenged in the fourth quarter. That's my advice. Dennis Smith, Archer Financial Services, with us here on the Saturday Morning Show. We visit with Dennis because he really studies and watches the livestock market, both cattle and hogs, here in the United States. So we check in with him from time to time, and it's an interesting visit 
really every time we do with Dennis. Well, there's more to come here on the Saturday morning show. Uh, There's another agricultural industry that is being challenged right now. And we'll talk about that when we continue here on the Saturday morning show. This is the headline on another agricultural industry, U.S. ethanol industry bleeding on oil collapse and coronavirus. The story that uh, came across my desk yesterday, ethanol producers are feeling the pain as margins on the corn-based fuel slump this week to an eight-year low for this time of the year. Weighed by concerns over lower fuel demand from the coronavirus and the recent collapse that we saw this week in oil prices. The outbreak, which has infected more than 126,000 people worldwide, sapping demand for fuel as countries restrict travel and local governments try to prevent the spread of the outbreak because the United States requires ethanol to be blended into the nation's fuel pool, gasoline consumption does play a role in demand for the corn-based fuel. And with falling gasoline prices, lower expected gasoline demand, some market participants said it's only a matter of time before ethanol plants decide to cut rates or shut down. Uh, Mitch Miller, who is chief executive of Carbon Green Bioenergy in Lake Odessa, Michigan, said at least half of the industry is bleeding red ink right now. Corn Belt ethanol refining margins fell on Wednesday to minus six cents a gallon, and that's the lowest for mid-March since back in 2012. Margins did slightly recover late in the week, reaching two cents a gallon on Thursday. But oil futures have dropped sharply, losing nearly 50% so far this year. And gasoline prices have dropped as well. The uh, Renewable Fuels Association chief economist Scott Richmond said, I have concern about ethanol margins. What we don't know right now is what's going to happen to gasoline demand. Some 200 U.S. ethanol plants produced a little over a million barrels per day of the fuel this past week, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. And gasoline futures fell on Thursday to 85.3 cents per gallon. That's their lowest seasonally since at least 2005. Last year, more than 10 ethanol plants cut rates or shuttered outright, and those idlings affected about 400 direct jobs as well as the uh, related jobs. So uh, the final quote I'll share with you, in our industry, I would expect to see announcements similar to what we saw in July and August when margins were at similar levels. According to Nick Bodish, who is chief executive of Elite Octane near Atlantic, Iowa, and Siouxland Ethanol near Jackson, Nebraska. So that's an industry involving agriculture that is feeling right now the impact of less travel and lower oil prices. 
We'll take a look at uh, where markets ended the week yesterday when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. It may not be stomach issues. For me, it's intense gas or pain or diarrhea, sometimes all at once, over and over. I spent years with the symptoms but could never figure it out. No matter what I did, they never went away. So I decided to break it down for my doctor and get really specific about my symptoms. We discovered that exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, or EPI, may be the reason for my stomach issues. EPI is caused by my pancreas. It leads to diarrhea, gas, bloating, stomach pain, unexplained weight loss, and oily stools. The symptoms just don't go away. But EPI can show up with even one symptom. The good news? EPI is manageable. But to get to the right diagnosis, you have to break it down for your doctor and get specific about the severity of your symptoms. Visit IdentifyEPI.com to learn more and use the symptom checker to help change the conversation with your doctor. Brought to you by AbbVie. That old car is worth money. Visit VictoryAutoRecords.com for an instant quote. VictoryAutoRecords.com VictoryAutoRecords.com well, the market activity this week dealt with down-limit daily moves that uh, happened in both livestock, uh, not so much in grains, but certainly in livestock. Lean hog futures fell their expanded daily limit yesterday. Again, fears over the pandemic that could curb consumer demand for meat and threaten the workforce at uh, processing plants. The Don Roos, president of the Iowa-based U.S. commodity, said the germophobia is in full source. Uh, traders are considering that more widespread testing for the virus might uncover infections among workers at meatpacking plants, and that would be a challenge as well for the meat industry. But it was another down the daily limit move yesterday because the June lean hog contract down $4.50 at Hit $71.30 a hundredweight on the close. April live cattle down the $4.50 limit, hitting $95.57 a hundredweight. And the April feeder cattle contract down $6.37 yesterday at $112.80. Back in a moment after this. Okay, coming up to news time here on the WGN Radio in Chicago. Quick look at the grain market yesterday. It wasn't quite as red as the uh, livestock market. May wheat was down just a quarter of a cent a bushel at $5.06. May corn down, or rather up at the end of the day, three quarters of a penny at 3.65 and three quarters a bushel. And the May soybean contract, though, did turn red down 12 cents. It ended the week at $8.48.5 a bushel. Well, that's our time here on the Saturday Morning Show. As always, we thank Bob Ferguson for doing the engineering work for us. We thank you for listening to us on the Saturday Morning Show. 
Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720. 